Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. UFOs over Australia. James Bond on the trail of the Yeti. Godzilla's real-life origins. Australia back on board with whaling. A country town strikes petrol. And a better way to tell the time. All that and more is coming up. I'm McLuby. I'm Michael Adams. This is the Wayback Week and we're about to dive deep into the stories from the second week of June 1954. Some made history, but a whole lot more deserve to. So in this week in 1954, the world's newspapers were filled with stories about the quite literal fallout from American nuclear testing. A lot's been happening in the Pacific Islands, namely around the Marshall Islands since the late 40s. The Americans have been testing bombs up that way. By 54, you're getting all sorts of experts saying this is bound to turn into something far, far worse than just testing. And the alarm bells are ringing. Uh, One bloke, Sir George Thompson, British nuclear expert, is pretty much saying this talk of doomsday devices, which a lot of the bombs are being called, the H-bomb, the cobalt bomb, which is being talked about as the, the ultimate the weapon that can destroy everyone and everything forever, pretty much. Which is truly terrifying, of course. And he's saying this means suicide, not war. And he's pretty much saying this goes way beyond any sort of retaliation against enemies. This is suicide on a on a global scale. So the cobalt bomb is actually designed to be a radiological weapon in the sense that It renders vast amounts of territory uninhabitable for a long time due to radiation. But the problem being, of course, is you can't actually work out where that radiation is going to fall. So That's right. It could be literally the worst blowback ever. The idea is that it's a salted bomb. And what they mean by salted in that sense is that, yeah, it spreads further or as far as possible and creates as much horror as possible. And, like, salts the earth. Which harks back to the times when the Romans sacked Carthage. Yeah. And they didn't just wreck the city. They literally salted the fields. They just scattered salt across the fields, making it impossible to farm and stopping Carthage from ever having a real estate boom again. That's why we're not going to visit Carthage on our holidays these days. Because Not on the bucket list. So this week, the cobalt bomb is in the news because this scientist is saying this is race suicide to use this thing and it kind of seems like that message got through because there wasn't the development of cobalt bombs particularly yeah so in the same week that the british nuclear expert is saying this is world suicide the uh people of the rongelap atoll which is not far from the bikini atoll which is where one of the early u.s nuclear tests were carried out are calling themselves the poison people with good reason because one of these bombs was a hydrogen bomb test drifted a lot further was two and a half times more powerful and more destructive than expected and it drifted across to their island 
was 82 of them called themselves the poison people. Yeah, that's right. And this H-bomb, I think the expected yield was six megatons and it ended up being mm. 15 megatons. Oops. This photograph was taken from an airplane at 50 miles. The width of the fireball at this time, about three seconds after detonation, was four miles. The tremendous yield resulted in a serious fallout situation at Bikini and certain other atolls downwind from ground zero. Sorry about that. Yeah. So yeah, the Castle Bravo test turned out to be a little bit bigger than they expected, Mm. which meant the blast radius and the fallout radius was also much bigger than they expected. And a Japanese fishing boat called the Lucky Dragon 5, that was its translated name, with 23 fishermen aboard, they saw this massive flash on the horizon. They called it the day that the sun rose in the west. Mm. And it took, I think, something like seven minutes for the sound to actually reach them. So that's how far away they were. And then within a few hours, they're being just covered in radioactive ash all over them. In this week that we're looking at, they're monitoring their, their health and saying mm. seven of these 23 guys are probably going to die. Yep. As it turned out, only one of them died. Um, well, I shouldn't say only one of them, but one of them died. They were all covered in burns. They got back to Japan. They were mm. sick as from radiation poisoning. In terms of its cultural legacy, that was the inspiration for Godzilla. The opening scene is these Japanese fishermen at sea right. being covered in radioactive ash and seeing the explosion. Oh, and so the islanders the, don't even get a look in. The islanders don't get a look in. And those poor islanders actually talked about what happened like after the after the blast that there was ash and it f- it fell on them and burned their skin like the, like the fishermen and but it was like salt they described it as being like salt which is like a spooky coincidence mm. in 2007 the islanders got compensation mm. it was a war- that was ruled that the nuclear claims tribunal said you are definitely deserving of a 1 million dollar compensation payout but there was no money left in the trust fund oh nice thanks so it's not happening so it's only 60-odd years later, finally get justice, but mm. a bit too late, sorry. Mm-hmm. Bummer. Yeah, and that's years after, they, soon after the blast, they started recording miscarriages, stillbirths at way, way higher levels than usual, thyroid cancer and all this sort of, all this horror. And the only place a, a cobalt-infused bomb was ever tested was Maralinga in Australia in 1957. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a full-on one mm. because they just haven't ever tested these because the consequences are far too unpredictable. But weirdly, they've been back in the news in the past couple of years. There's a suspicion that the Russians have a drone submarine equipped with cobalt bombs. So if there's ever a full-on attack on Russia, this autonomous drone can then launch cobalt mm. missiles that will then render the whole world uninhabitable it's the dead man's hand mm-hmm. which was the subject of dr strangelove that was the right. idea behind it the doomsday yes. weapon where right. you know you hit us and we have something built which will hit you back and destroy everything right happy times happy times not that we should cobalt poor old cobalt getting a bad name here cobalt yeah. of course is the chemical element which is essential to human life there you go mm. its other name is b12 Really? As a vitamin. Yeah, did yeah, not yeah. Know that. yeah. It's got an it's got a strong Australian link because we used to feed cobalt to sheep. Man. Hmm. Also, coming off this cobalt bomb research was cancer treatment. This week, it's almost like a cliche of 
Red Menace 1950s atomic paranoia. Mm. That's this same week, the Americans staged a 400 bomber mock attack on 41 US cities to determine in the event of a global atomic war how many of their people might die. And the death toll was 5.3 million with another 2.2 million wounded. And imagine being a kid through all that. Mm. You'd be terrified. These are the days of duck and cover where yep. it's like, you know, when you hear the siren, get under your desk because mm. that's really going to protect you. Mm. And sing the little song. Duck and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Paul and Patty know this. No matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. And That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. And first, you duck. duck. In terms of the Red Menace this week as well, big news. Australia's uh, all wrapped up in the Petrov affair, the mm-hmm. Royal Commission's hearing that Petrov, who was a KGB agent who defected in Australia. That's Mr. Petrov. Mr. Petrov and his wife had furnished the Royal Commission with documents that suggested there might be up to 70 secret Moscow agents working in the Australian government. Turned out that there weren't. She was not a spy. She was not a spy. Although, how do you be, if you're married to a spy? True. Does that make you a spy? I don't think so. Well, my partner's... No, 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 la, 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 don't tell me, don't tell me, dear. My partner's father was a spy for MI6 and her mother did know and had to sign the Official Secrets Act but didn't make her a spy. Right. Mm, but she going, knew She stuff. knew. The kids didn't know. Right. She knew that he, he was a spy. She didn't know what he was up to. Right. But also in red news, Senator Joe McCarthy, aided by his lawyer, Roy Cohen, is investigating communist infiltration of the US Army. Mm. And, and it's this week that the ultimate political smackdown occurs when McCarthy's lawyer, Roy Cohen, has said... That there are, he's got a list of communists in the army. The army's council, Joseph Welch, has said, You've got till sundown to present this so called list. Mm. And then McCarthy turns around and says, Well, you can hardly talk because one of your aides used to be in a lawyer's union, which is a commie front. And Welch turned around to McCarthy and said, Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? And that was seen as the turning point against McCarthy. Mm. McCarthy was completely sort of uh, held up as this monster. So that's the sort of the the moral low point was, was reached. And the crazy thing is that the guy, Roy Cohen, who was the lawyer for McCarthy, was Donald Trump's mentor. Oh, nice. Yeah, he was also Trump Sr.'s lawyer. I think that needs to come back, that line. Yeah. Have you no sense of decency, sir? Could someone deliver a line like that to Trump that would just destroy Trumpism? No, I think those days are gone. Mm, You'd have to be like the killer tweet, wouldn't it? We've transcended the moral low point. (laughs) We've come out the other side. (laughs) We've come out the other end. From the Red Menace... To the Blue Menace off Australia's shores. Whale caught off Brisbane. A 90-tonne blue whale this week. The first to be taken in Australian waters this century was caught 45 miles northeast of Brisbane this morning. Deliberately or was it just bycatch? Uh, Some some guy there with his fishing rod going, I've got one. Oh, my God, I've really got one. (laughs) 
most deliberately. And this is kind of mind-blowing because, as I said, it's the first time this century. But they're out there scouting for whales. Blue whales, which are generally caught only in the Antarctic, are the largest creatures in the world. They attain a length of up to 120 feet. Captain Bredo Rimstad, gunner captain of the whale chaser COS-2, at Tangaluma Whaling Station on Morton Island, harpooned the whale at 8.15am. It fought for two hours. What were they using whales for at that point? I, I do wonder. Maybe. Because, I mean, you know, in the, 19, in the 1800s they were used, and before they were used for oil and grease. and. I think this one's suspected of being a KGB spy. <laughs> so this, was, this blue whale was actually a red whale. It was a red whale. That's mm. maybe why they dragged him in. Talking of chasing down rare and exotic beasts... This week in 1954, they called off the months-long search for the Yeti in the Himalayas. See, they're chasing whales, but they're not chasing Yetis. And I found this really interesting because the the Yeti was in the news in April this year, April 2019, when uh, Yeti footprints were photographed in the Himalayas. So the search for the Yeti might yet resume. Might Yeti resume. Might Yeti resume. So this was called the Snowman Expedition. It started around the start of 1954, a fully mounted expedition going really, you know, 25,000 feet up mountains looking for this Yeti. Sherpas. And Sherpas, the yeah. deal, a whole deal. And they had actually estimated they had a 60 to 40 chance of success, they thought. So the, the odds on they were going to catch a Yeti. Does anyone ask the locals when they, you know, embark on these things? Do they say, before we do all this, any of you lot... You seen a big hairy dude? Funny you should ask because the answer is absolutely yes. They timed their Yeti expedition to coincide with Yeti season when the locals saw Yetis most frequently. And a llama, a high-ranking llama, actually gave them some Yeti skin. Llama's rare gift to snowman expedition. A piece of Yeti skin, three inches long by one and a half inches wide and covered with reddish black hair, has been presented to our expedition by a senior lama. This, that, is, this is the Buddhist uh, monk, not the animal? Yes, not, not this, is, this is correct. It is the Buddhist monk, not the animal. But they had, until just recently, had a full yeti skin, but they used it in ceremonies. Ceremonies that involved drinking a hell of a lot of the local Arak-style whiskey. Right. So they had their ceremony with the yeti skin, all got hammered, left the Yeti skin out, woke up, and it was gone. We breezed past something there as well, the discovery that the Yeti is a ranger, reddish black hair, but only a scrap left. By this week in June 1954, they'd called off the search of, for the Yeti. So they, the report was they decided to abandon the hunt for three reasons. As the year advanced, the snows, which bore Yeti tracks, receded, adding hundreds of square miles to the, the search area. They would have had to go to higher altitudes and... They were all pretty tired because they've been looking for oh. the Yeti for, for months now. Poor dears. But this is a Yeti they're after. I know. They have to go to extremes, obviously. Yetis don't just wander into the, the local tavern. What I love probably most about this is that these reports came from Ralph Izzard. Ralph Izzard was a veteran reporter for the Daily Mail and he was a former uh, naval intelligence officer who'd served in World War II who'd been recruited by none other than Ian Fleming, who then based the character of James Bond on his exploits, including that card game in Casino Royale, which was the first ever James Bond book. So 
Ralph Izzard was really James Bond looking for the Yeti. On the and trail if he'd of found the Yeti, it would have been in some mountain lair. It would have been stroking a cat. Of course. With its cobalt bomb ready to go. Yeah, in a swivelly chair. Yeah. Mm. Sadly, no James Bond plot has ever involved the chase for a, a, a luscious Yeti in a, in a skimpy outfit. What would be called? Would be called like Furfinger. Furfinger. All right, what about Licensed to Chill? The Abominable Snow Man with the Golden Gun. I don't want you to die, Mr. Bond. I want you to clean my fur of nits. Now, just briefly, in other Himalayan news this week... Mm. So it's Sir Edmund Hillary has quite recently ascended Everest for the first time, along with his co-conqueror Tenzing. And this week in 1954, Sir Edmund Hillary is feeling quite unwell. Tenzing takes it upon himself to tell the world press that he has been infected with a mystery illness connected with the spirit of Everest. And the spirit of Everest is quite specifically a woman, a woman ghost, by the name of Show Mo Longa, who guards the mountain. Ah. And the bloody spoil sport doctors, you know mm. what they say? What do they it's say? Not, it's not a mystery spiritual illness caused by a ghost. It's bloody malaria. Oh, see? As if. Science. Science. Sciencing everything. Oh, taking, ruin it. You're taking ruin the romance the out of I know. That. If they'd found the Yeti, they'd probably try and, oh, that's not a Yeti. Just a big dog. Yeah. But also, if Edmund was this high up with Tenzing, uh, any sign of a Yeti there, do they, you know, in, in while he's sitting around trying to get uh, over his malaria? He should have really been on Yeti watch the whole time, shouldn't he? Mm-hmm. No reports? Well, funny you should say, because in 1953, Hillary and Tenzing Norgay did report seeing large footprints while they were scaling Mount Everest mm. and determined that they belonged to the legendary beast of the Himalayas, the Yeti. So Edmund was pretty tall. He, he was, just didn't have altitude sickness and just look back and think, ooh, there's some big footprints. Yeah, that's right. Hang on. Hang on. Am I wearing snowshoes? <laughs> so that was that was actually it, yeah. Hillary's nineteen fifty three ascent began the abominable snowman craze, mm. supposedly. Mm. And that led then to the snowman expedition we've been talking about. So it's all linked. In nineteen sixty to sixty one, mm. the winter season, mm. Hillary led an expedition to do altitude research and, as a sideline, search for the Yeti. Really? He did. And in 1960, Hillary said he didn't believe there was an abominable snowman, even though he had a, quote, Yeti scalp in his possession. He did not. He did so. Does this mean he... Was he covering up? Was he? Did he see one? He just found the scalp lying around? I don't know. Could have been a toupee. Could have been. Yeti toupee. <laughs> but the search goes on. The search goes on. The Yeti has not been found. Do you believe in the Yeti? I want to. I want to believe. Yeah. You ever seen any mystery animals? Uh, let me think. Uh, no, I can't say I have. No. No. Have you ever seen a UFO? No, I'd like to. Do you believe in flying saucers? <laughs> no. What do you think they are? Uh, I think they're our imagination, which is a lovely thing too. I don't know. In 1954, the week we're talking about, Australia was in the middle of what they call a UFO flap. So UFOs were seen in Botany Bay, Maroubra in Sydney, and then in Melbourne, 
in Essendon, Richmond, Malvern, Dandenong, and up in Shepparton. So these are all separate sightings. The newspapers are full of them. Mm. And some of the most remarkable descriptions of what they look like. Mm-hmm. A flying railway carriage. Oh. A flying single-decker bus. Not a double-decker, a single-decker. Right. Mr. Keith Oglesby of Bulleen said that he saw a saucer over Essendon Aerodrome late Friday night. He said the object was bright orange and he observed it for four minutes. I've never seen anything like it before, he said. I like that over the aerodrome. So the aliens are actually even thinking, oh, well, that's their airport. We'll use that. Exactly right. Here's a great headline from the Argus on June 9th. Please, mummy, let us shift. It may bomb us. Saucer terrifies two schoolgirls. Wait, hey, where is this? This is in Melbourne. This oh, is look, in, I'm starting to believe. This yeah. is in uh, in Dandenong. A trembling, still scared 16-year-old girl said yesterday she stood frozen with fear while a flying saucer hovered 20 yards away from her on Princess Highway Dandenong. Even better. More Sydney sightings. A cigar-shaped object manned by supermen wearing transparent clothing. Oh, Ooh, so now hollow. we're getting saucy saucers. A blue, then green, then red, then blue object brighter than the stars was reported. Mr William Mitchell, 34, of Little Bay, Sydney, said two people who appeared to be super beings manned a cigar-shaped silver-coloured object about 60 feet long flying 600 feet over Botany Bay at 6am today. There were two big men, exceptionally big men, at the controls. They didn't appear to be ordinary people. It terrified me. I've been through the war, but I've never seen anything like this. So making it up... Imagining it? Uh, yes. <laughs> I would go with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, considering we didn't have a whole lot of witnesses, why would you not have a whole lot of people? 6 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe. Mm, so it was sleeping. bright orange and seemed to be emitting sparks, says this man from Canterbury Road, St Kilda. man from uh, West Heidelberg reported a strange object in the sky which had appeared at the same time for two consecutive nights. Could have been the moon. The Argus, however, did offer a £1,000 reward this week for a flying saucer photograph. I think the offer still stands. Really? I, I can think knock so. one up. So they did actually have experts down at the Dandenong siding where the girls were with Geiger counters trying to work out if there was any physical evidence. Yep. I'm assuming there was Let me guess. Mm. The search goes on. So you really are the scully in this podcast to my Mulder because I want to believe. Uh, No, well, I want to believe, well, weirdly and inconsistently, I want to believe in Yetis, but the alien source of stuff. Not so much. It's a lovely idea. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, it's funny that we're talking uh, scepticism or, or the opposite thereof. Um, I've got a nice little headline here which comes to us from Bendigo in Victoria. Hotel well yields petrol by the bucket. A well of pure petrol has Bendigo puzzled. As I, there was a rash of headlines from this story. Pure petrol in hotel well. Bendigo petrol mystery. Free petrol for a few. What's all this So this about? is not oil. This is refined petroleum. This is where it gets weird. Bendigo has struck petrol in the yard of a Main Street hotel, but there has been no rush to peg claims. 
and no refining is needed. You just haul the petrol up in a bucket, put it in your tank, and drive the car away. In a well. In a well. Very convenient. It is, isn't it? The strike was made by a team of excavators behind the Arcade Hotel's stables. One prospector made a positive test. He took a lighted candle down the shaft. Whoa. There was a bang and the candle holder withdrew hastily. <laughs> hmm, that smells like it could be petrol down there. Yeah. Let me investigate with this candle. Yeah. As and opposed to with his flashlight. Okay, you go down there. You give that a try. Hmm, okay, I will. <laughs> News of the find leaked out and new investigators brought bucketfuls of petrol to the surface. A few tests convinced them that they had the real McCoy. Now this this gets weirder because they then say that they did not worry about specific gravity or colour of the of the liquid. The stuff worked in a car and that was all they that's all that counted. That's all that mattered to them. It was brown, it showed a little grit, but no water. So somehow this petrol had leaked into this subterranean well? How does that work? Well, then the experts, they did a check over three weeks that showed a nearby garage had lost not a drop of petrol. The well, so far, is said to have yielded 80 gallons. So Bendigo's big petrol mystery goes on, and meanwhile, a few working the claim are getting free motoring. Wow. Do they ever solve it? Not really. A few weeks later, a few more headlines... Bucket brigades of schoolboys have drawn about 100 gallons from the well in the past three weeks. The well has been sealed up temporarily when someone overheard a schoolboy say, let's toss some lighted matches down and see what happens. These schoolboys, I'm starting to think these schoolboys forget nuclear weapons and all this sort of stuff. The real scourge, schoolboys, nothing but trouble. A local publican said of the schoolboys, I had to hunt them away. They were full of mischief. Full of mischief and malicious intent. But I don't blame them. These these boys have yeah. found petrol in a hole. Yeah, what are you going to do? And they're just drop scooping a, it out. What are you going to do but drop a match down there? So they've tempted. sealed it up. Is it still there? A councillor told the paper, we will fill in the well over the next few days. That will end the mystery for everyone. But it won't. The mystery endures to this day. It does. Well, it does for us. To anyone listening in Bendigo who's has a mind to get some free petrol. It's much more expensive than it was. It's probably aged perfectly now as well. Fuel prices as being what they are, start digging. Just make sure there's no sparks from your picks when you're digging because that That's could, right. could go badly. Yeah. I wonder how, how do you think it got there? I reckon maybe it's the aliens. It's, it's their stash of fuel. When they drop in, they just fill up from the well. That's maybe that's, that haven't come back because yeah. we filled it in. All right, I've got a I've got a story here. It's one of those sort of short stories. I'm just going to read in its entirety because it's horrible, but it's sort of grimly amusing in its ghastly detail. Mm. Babe flips cigarette seven die. Chicago Sunday, a whiskey drinking, cigarette smoking, eleven year old boy nicknamed Babe told police yesterday he started a tenement fire which killed seven people and injured nine. The boy had said he flipped a cigarette butt into some rubbish in a stairwell in the tenement on Friday night. Police Captain Robert Ryan said he learned the boy smokes and drinks whiskey and often flipped away glowing cigarette butts. The boy lived in a flat with his father. Police said they found five empty whiskey bottles in the boy's school desk. It also contained comic books entitled Keeper of the Morgue, Werewolf of the Alps and Murder from the Tomb. Babe's father a factory worker, was jailed. He told police, Babe smoked cigarettes about a pack a day. I didn't want him to, but I bought him cigarettes because there wasn't much I could do about it. 
police said Gregory also told them he gave the boy an occasional drink of whiskey. He's not going to win parent of the year, is he? No, he's not. And that kid, gee. He's probably still alive today, having nightmares about having killed seven people when he was 11 years old. And pub- Well, maybe he's not alive today. Yeah, he's smoking he's... a packet when he's 11. Yeah, and his liver may be shot. Five yeah. bottles in the school desk. In the school desk. What was he doing? Just sucking down shots in between algebra and geography. Yeah. I love the fact that he did own up. He did own up. It doesn't mm. sound like he got in trouble. It sounds like Dad got in trouble. Mm. I love also the, the notation of the comic books because in the mid-50s there was a mm. massive panic about uh, comic books corroding young minds. Mm. Did he do all of this stuff because he read Keeper of the Morgue? I think that's the angle you go with if you're looking for your headline. It was a big week for pigeons. Was it? Really? It was a big week for pigeons. Well, not a great week for pigeons. So in New York this week, city officials trying to stop pigeons from doing what they do on the new exterior stonework of City Hall installed a 12,000-pound electronic bird-proof system to zap pigeons. Seems a bit unfair. When you say doing what they do, you mean cooing? I mean pooing. Oh, they probably coo and poo. Coo and poo, yeah. They could be related the more they coo. And this is defacing the city and they've decided enough's enough. Enough's enough. We're going we're gonna to get high tech. We're going to zap these pigeons. So we're going to have dead pigeons scattered so. around. Mm, that's a bit sad. But this week in Europe, 9,000 homing pigeons were set free in France for a flight to England and they all disappeared. Even oh. more spooky, 8,000 pigeons had disappeared the week before. Eaten by supermen in saucers. Well, funnily you should say that because some of the UFO sightings in Australia were put down to flocks of pigeons. Oh. Mm. So it's all very related. It is. But someone in the United States this week had a solution for pesky birds. Mm. In Ohio, in the United States this week, a Mrs. Catherine Clisby uh, announced that she was not just shooting starlings that were around her property, she was frying them up in wine and said they were quite tasty. So, fried up. Fried up starlings. Mm. They're the little ones that you see in great flocks that mm. give you that sort of beautiful, distant view of the changing shape in, That's the, right. in the sky. She'd just whip out her pan and they'd all just fly in. Right. She tried them fried in butter, adding red wine when they were browned. So, these are not blackbirds, not four and 20. No. She did say the birds didn't have much meat. But she reckons she got four to five bites to each breast and five breasts for each dinner guest. From a starling? Mm, so I guess she's, if she's got four people over for dinner, she's serving up 20 starlings. In other uh, food news this week, Big Celery was trying to convince Australia that celery was the most versatile vegetable using a little cartoon character called Celery Sue who has to be about the naffest little cartoon I've ever seen. Wait, is Big Celery, that's not something you drive to see as a tourist attraction, like the Big Pineapple? I'm saying it's like Big Farmer. Right. Oh, Big Big, Celery. Big Tech, Big Celery. The Celery Lobby. Specifically, the South Australian Celery Lobby was trying to convince us that celery pretty much can do anything, especially good on sandwiches. Chopped celery and grated cheese for a sandwich. Diced celery, apple, nuts and salad dressing. Celery and carrot. Diced celery with slices of cooked meat and poultry. Savouries. Grated cheese mixed with tomato sauce and used as a filling in three-inch lengths of celery. Mmm. Those are the hard cell. 
very hard celery. I quite like celery, but it's not exactly the most exciting of vegetables, really. Mm, but if it wasn't for big celery, you'd know nothing about well, it. Well, it wasn't for celery Sue. Celery Sue. Yeah. Whatever happened to Celery Sue? She's got long legs and little high heel shoes on, and she's got this bouffant of blonde hair, and the rest of hers are comprised of stalks of celery. Also this week, they decided that they really should restrict the sale of horse meat for human consumption. Horse flesh. Horse flesh for human consumption, yeah. So the butchers, there's butchers and then there's horse butchers. Are these old racehorses? Were they being bred for consumption? Hmm. And is this purely a cultural thing as in we think of horses as these noble beasts that we yeah. you know, ride around way, on? Same way we don't cows, no. Yeah. In the same way we don't eat dogs, but we eat cats. Well, except dogs are carnivores. True. Mm. Mm. Horses are too, aren't they? Carnivores, yes. The, the great man-eating horses. Yeah. Second week of June, 1954. Lots of articles about soups, nourishing soups, made with or without celery, with or without horse meat. But the best one is for mock turtle soup. Because turtles are a bit hard to get your hands on. I guess so. Especially if it's cold. You don't want to be putting your hands into some pond trying to rip out a turtle. No. So the ingredients for mock turtle soup, one glass sherry, one pound shin of beef, one medium onion, three eggs, one sprig parsley, one teaspoon salt, one calf's head. Right. This this would need a hell of a lot more sherry for me to get into this. Yeah. The calf's head, no? The calf's head. Mm. I like that the calf's head... Is that, that's the mock turtle bit? I'm guessing. The first step is wash and dry head, then remove bones. The bone is removed from the head. Hmm. I'm not oh. sure how much, imagine trying to yeah, remove the bone from a calf's head. I mean, yeah. it's the skull, isn't it? I'd love to see this on MasterChef. Your mystery box ingredient is... One a, calf's head. And four starlings. <laughs> Have at it, people. Your time starts now. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Or just the mystery box ingredient is celery. Yeah. And there's celery yep. soup. There's celery She's back. to give you a hand. Yeah. yeah. But this mock turtle soup then was all the rage. I don't know. As in, guess what? Tonight we're having mock turtle soup. And you just go, I'm outraged. I want actual turtle soup. Screw your mock turtle soup. This yeah. tastes like calf's head. Yeah. This isn't. This isn't real. This is mock. I'm very tempted to give it a go. Mm, really? Would you break your vegetarianism if I made some mock turtle I, soup? I don't think I'd break my vows for that. But I th- so, come on, if you can do mock turtle with meat, you can do mock turtle with tofu. Tofu. Guess so. Mm. Starling pie either? Uh, if you can do your well, can you can you do a tofu starling? Could I offer you a celery sandwich, Mick? <laughs> <laughs> it's getting sad. It will be nine fifty and ten seconds. Time, time. My third favourite herb. Time. <laughs> That's right. Well, this is time with the I. Oh. No H-Y. And uh, it affects us all deeply. The headline this week, new official time teller. Oh. Mm. The post office will soon introduce a speaking clock in Melbourne and Sydney to replace the present system in which a telephonist answers telephone calls for the time. So, so, ring you, a bell? Mm. So you used to ring up and go, oh, hello, uh, what time is it? This is what did my head in. What a I, job. I mean, we know about the talking clock. Mm. At the third stroke, it At, will be? It will be 12, 10 and 
22nd. Which, yeah. as a journalist, did you used to use that to test your recording equipment? I did. Yes. Yeah. You get your levels. Yeah. 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 Did you know he was called George? I did not. Mm. Our talk, Australia's talking clock, apparently. His name was actually George or he was called George? He was just fondly referred to as George. I did not know The that. talking clock. Who, as of October 2019, will be no more. So right now you can still call. You can still call George. Can you remember the number? George is on his way out. I can. It's 1194. Well done. Amazing. So if you're listening to this now and you want to sample the talking clock, hurry up. Yeah, he will be gone as of October 1, 2019 at midnight. And I'm really hoping George has a little farewell. Does he? Do you think his final words maybe? He may have something to say. Mm. And in itself it's kind of tragic because Telstra have hosted this service for many years and they've just decided they've they've admitted it doesn't actually cost them anything to run it but for whatever reason they've decided we're going to scrap him george will be no more because apparently people don't need it because we've all got you know our times on our devices i do think it would be quite amusing to hold up your smartphone and dial 1194 when the time is staring you right in the face this is from a previous age when our phones were actually just phones and didn't Mm -hmm. do anything else but who do you believe george or your device i think the devices are sort of synced to some sort of cobalt bomb somewhere aren't they they're all no do you believe George? george i'm going with george so sorry this week was the week george was introduced this was, this was the announcement of the coming a speaking of George. clock. So it was pretty much the, 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 the soft introduction, the soft launch of, of George. We're not calling him George here. They're just saying there's a new system coming in. And also, just mentioning in passing, something that would have back then been just an everyday occurrence, which is you calling this telephonist. And I love this idea. You say, hi, oh, oh, um, can you just give me the time? And this telephonist would say, sure. The time is 319. And you might have a little chat. Do you think 65 years ago this week, people reading this were going, I can't believe they're getting rid of the telephonists who tell us the time. I this, they would. Some automated system. This is outrageous. Well done. Yes. Good point, futurist. Because that is, that is how it would have been seen, getting rid of a human, a real person who could answer the phone and maybe you know, have a little chat with you and replacing it with this automaton. At the third stroke. It will be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So but I'm sad about George. I am. I'm, I'm a little bit devastated mm. because he was, to me, yeah. He was a friend. He was a friend and he, a friend to many. He was a little obsessive as in, he, you know, he was a little bit narrow-minded, a bit all about time. He Monomaniacal. He, he didn't, didn't really even shut up about no. time. I was like, yes, George, yes. But have you got any, any other thoughts on life in, in general? No. But at the third stroke. He did a lot of stroking. He did a lot of stroking, George. Yeah, it would have yes, been. It was gentle. I'm surprised that. I wonder if people use him to get to sleep. Oh, that's a nice thought. Mm. I bet they did. Hmm. And they and you may still, can. still do. And that's the other point is that Telstra also admitted, while saying we're going to chop this service out, that numbers were up every time we change daylight savings, whether it's coming in or going out. The number of callers to George the Talking Clock go up. They go through the roof. Do you remember when they also had dial a song, dial yes. a joke, dial a prayer? Oh, oh, I'd forgotten. Oh, it's all coming rushing back now. The days before the interwebs. Did you used to call these services, Michael? Did you? I make? actually did. Yeah, I used to call dial a song. I don't right. know why. Right. I think you actually did pay for those ones a little bit more. I think. And I think the get... time was free, but I think dial a song mm. was charged as a local call. You think? I want to hear flock of seagulls. I need to hear it now. 
I need to hear Iran. Yeah, and you hear it down the crackly line. No starlings. No starlings. Just seagulls. Mm. Forget nukes. Forget Armageddon. We don't need any of that because the weather itself is dishing it up. In the second week of June 1954, the weather is dishing it up? Mm-hmm. Do tell. We've got from the Age correspondent from London... 10 seconds of chaos What on a cricket field of all things. Now, a lot of people might think cricket can be a bit dull, but not on this day, a whirlwind. This is not a description of a fast bowler. This is actually a whirlwind. You're even sounding vaguely sporty there. This is impressive. This is not describing one of the, the speedy ball throwers. Well done. Down the field at the goal. That throw those thingamies at the thingamie yeah. while he's holding the mm. other thing. This is a literal whirlwind, not some pace bowler. A whirlwind yesterday struck Nelson Cricket Ground, Lancashire, and lasted 10 seconds, during which it lifted 70-year-old assistant groundsman Harry Varley and carried him bodily 50 yards from the boundary to the pavilion. That's not all. It hurled a sight board, a sight screen, one of those big white things, over a wall and 30 yards out of the ground. It whipped water from a lake into a 60-foot high spout and... Best of all, it showered, well, not not for this guy, showered 51-year-old dustman Jim Pack with rubbish as it threw his rubbish cart into the air. Good Lord. Mm. And did they play on? Well, it, no mention of the game itself. I love how they it carried him to the pavilion. It to sounds quite... Was it actually a whirlwind or was it a flying saucer? Because there were flying saucers uh, also seen this week in England, I'm saying, Mick. Right. Not fans of cricket, you say? I'm saying that there's a reasonably good chance that well, the Yeti was at the control of one of these flying saucers, probably powered by pigeons. Probably, or starlings. Starlings, yeah, yes. Or your odd mock turtle. Eating his celery sticks and thought, I'll, I'll mess with these cricket players. Yeah, well, possibly. Then again, it may be purely meteorological. After the whirlwind came blinding rain, steaming sun, wind, thunder and lightning. Said Varley, I thought it was the end of the world. And if there was a cobalt bomb in the vicinity, it probably would have been. That's all the time we have this week. Join us next week when we go way back to 1944. Until then, remember, as William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. On your bill.